listening to Brunch with me, Noreen Mayer, on this Thursday morning. And I'm really excited to have back on the program Karen Ko, our co-host for this week's Agenda Cafe. Karen, it's so good to speak to you. How are you doing today? Very good, Noreen. It's great to be back again with uh, another Agenda Cafe. I know we're only doing four shows for the month because we're going to take a break in December. But um, we're packing in a lot. And today... We're talking about a pretty serious topic, uh, which has long been taboo, not just in Hong Kong, but really in any culture. But it's really something that needs to be addressed. And we're talking about the, the prevalence of child sexual abuse in Hong Kong and what the reporting and the data can tell us. Uh, I'll mention now we're also on Facebook Live because I want people to go over there as well. Uh, so go to Noreen's Facebook page, Noreen Mia on RTHK Radio 3, and you can see as well as hear us. And you, if you've been following the news, you know that lately there's actually been a lot more publicity, publicity around the whole issue of child abuse in all forms, whether it's emotional, physical, sexual. But it seems that Hong Kong's approach to identifying and then supporting victims is is very patchy. And on the legal side, there are lots of holes in the legislation and sentencing provisions. And right now, there's actually a lot of discussion going on about what reforms should should be and would be. So we've got two fantastic guests joining us to talk about um, child sexual abuse. Tora Edgar. Tora is the founder of Talk Hong Kong, which is a volunteer peer-led group of women and femme survivors of sexual abuse and assault, which was founded in Hong Kong in 2019. And Talk Hong Kong has recently published this groundbreaking report on what we do and what we don't know about uh, child sexual abuse in Hong Kong. And Tora is also in the process of preparing uh, to talk about her personal experience and also this research at this year's TEDx Tinhao Women event on December 1st. So she's very <laughs> excited about that. And congratulations, Tora, on that. And we're also joined by Darcy Davison-Roberts. And Darcy is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong, and she's a human rights lawyer. She initially came to work with Talk Hong Kong through the university's knowledge exchange program, and she continues to work with them as an advisor. So she provided assistance with the legal aspects of the Talk report. So Darcy and Tora, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Well, Tora, we spoke to you last year just about Talk Hong Kong. And in the meantime, you've obviously been incredibly busy uh, doing this research, putting this report together. Can you tell us more about it? Why did you decide to do this? Well, Darcy is a part of this story, too. So you know, <laughs> we had been running the uh, support group for about a year, and then we started realizing that the there were some laws under review that were going to have some recommendations coming forward about sexual offenses and sentencing. And Darcy came in originally to help us formulate a response to that, to the public consultation. And while we were doing it, we realized, wow, there's a lot of information that it seems like we should know about child sexual abuse. What is the situation in Hong Kong? And it just was not very accessible at all. And we saw that as a big gap in how can we prevent something that we don't know very much about. So I realized that if there wasn't one, I might be the right person to make one. And that's what we've done over the last year. So for our first annual report. And let me ask both of you, what was that like making that report? I mean, it sounds like a mammoth task of having to go to so many different places to gather information and, and make sense of it. 
Well, it was actually, it was quite interesting because what Tara is talking about is actually the Law Reform Commission. So the Law Reform Commission in Hong Kong was tasked a long time ago now, back in 2006, with taking a look at all sexual offenses in Hong Kong and trying to bring them up to speed, because it might surprise you to know that um, these laws are borrowed. We really just enacted um, a mirror of the English laws on sexual offenses from like the 50s. So the laws on our books right now are from about the mid 50s. And that so the law, <laughs> which is a bit shocking when you think about the what the sort of um, change in social norms and you know the way that we look at these kinds of offenses so um the law reform commission in 2006 was tasked with looking at this and it's taken them up till we're still doing it what Tara's talking about is part of the consultation process and so that was the first thing that we did was a public response to the consultation on sentencing for sexual offenses but so that in itself was sort of really interesting, but then we used that as a springboard to, and Tara, I think your main thing, your main goal was to look at this more, this report in depth about the incidents of CSA in Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we started to look for who gives reliable numbers on prevalence, how many kids are affected, that's even that simple thing is quite hard to find and there's not enough research on it and we could certainly do with more. And luckily, along this process, I found other organizations such as the CSA Center in the UK, who are now funded by the Home Office, who do exactly this kind of work. So they gather together all the official data that's out there, and they look at trends over time and indicators that will help us identify and prevent abuse. And what they're also doing over time is getting the departments to record more information so that at least for cases that are entering the system you can really understand what's happening with them who at least who's getting reported so a lot of unreported cases as well which is a major issue right i mean it would seem just for a layman you would think okay maybe the social welfare department should keep all the information is is that the case they do keep probably more information than any other department but it's it's still pretty fragmentary. So you, you might be able to see the number of male and female children, but you can't associate that with what kind of abuse they suffered. Because what you need is specific plans, right? You need to know that girls eight to 10 in TST are more vulnerable to close male relatives. But because you can't associate that data to each other, and then you can't look at it from social welfare to the police department, which has even less data, it, it's quite hard to get good specific plans. So Tora Dawson, you, sorry, go on. Dawson. Oh, sorry, Noreen. No, no, go I was just going to say, spring, based on what Tara said, it's, um, well, if you think about a CSA case, a child sexual abuse case, there's going to be multiple data points that that particular victim is going to hit within the system. So they're going to potentially um, hospital, they're going to go seek medical treatment. So you have a hospital authority. If the police get involved, you have the police. If social welfare is the first point of contact, then you have social welfare involved. Um, also, if it goes into the justice system, then you have the Department of Justice and the judiciary involved. So you have multiple bureaus and departments who, in theory, are seeing 
these cases. And so, yes, SWD, the Social Welfare Department, has sort of the most data, I guess, Tara, would you say? Probably the yeah. most yeah. in and terms of sort of who it is and ages and genders. But, yeah. um, but all these other places also have data. And then the primary thing we found, as Tara touched upon, is that they are collecting data in very different ways between different departments and organizations. Nice. So, like, just to give you a quick example, um, the police will break their age data down by three age categories, and they keep it up to the age of 16, whereas SWD does it, I think, Tara, by, like, two or three-year increments. Yeah. and only up to 15. Uh no, I'm sorry about that. That's the police department. It's under 17s and social welfare. Yeah. It's under 18s. So yeah, they're looking yeah. at not only different different groups of ages, but a different age height as well. I was yeah. going to say, what types of data is being collected, and you know, um, and are, are these departments working together with the data, or are they very much separate? Um, because if you've got one victim, if you've got one survivor. Um, one child, um, how are these departments working together? Um, do they have a file? I personally don't have any insider information on that, so I would hesitate to make a conclusion. But they do have multidisciplinary committees that work on some cases, so they yeah, must be the SWD. Yeah. Oh, through yeah, the Tara's right. Through the Social Welfare Department, if the if the child ends up getting into the into the social welfare system, they may have what's called a multidisciplinary conference and the police potentially would be involved in that. Um, a social worker from SWD would be involved. But then again, maybe not somebody from a medical side. So the hospital authority may be completely outside of that and may not have any insight into what's going on. So there's, I guess, um, it's quite difficult. I think one of the things that we found was trying to figure out how the numbers from the police were reflected by the numbers in the social welfare department were reflected by the numbers that we saw from the Department of Justice in people actually being charged and put to trial. So it was very difficult to sort of follow it or follow a case from sort of report or incident through to the end. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, of, of course, child abuse, uh, as we know in, in, in Chinese culture, in many cultures, and, and child sexual abuse is, is a taboo. Is that also mm -hmm. reflected in the data? Um, is there, I mean, prevalence of, of underreporting or when it's reported, the data is then somehow lost or not acted upon? Um, have you come across, you know, this in, in your research? We estimate it's 90, 96% unreported. 96% so, of it is yes, not reported. Yes. Yeah. And, and how did you I make mean, this estimation, Tora? So in working with a prevalence expert from the sociology department at Hong Kong U, uh, we looked at a lot of studies. Well, I say a lot. We looked at what studies there are that uh, yeah. include Hong Kong in their surveys. There could definitely be more work in that area. But what we came out with is that 12% of kids, which is a number you'll hear in the US, the UK, WHO estimates 20% of kids. So, you know, that number may change as we get more research, but what is not going to happen is it's not going to suddenly drop to 3%. Right. It's probably going to stay in that 10 to 15% range. So when we look at what is reported to social welfare department, which on average is only about 330 cases a year, which is not very much for a city our size, 
and we look at that we think it's 12% of kids, the gap there is 96% unreported. Wow. And can you offer any insights? I mean, I can guess, but can you offer any insights as to why? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a lot of guesswork and based on my own experience and from the many, many women who arrive at our support group, it's a very difficult thing to report, you know, especially for a child. Uh, I think Rain Lily has statistics from women who come to them that it usually the delay in reporting is 13 years. So that's wow. a long period of time. Long time. And, the, and the consequence of reporting can be quite high on a victim. You know, you know, if you're a very young person, you are probably concerned about losing your family or whatever the threat mechanism was from the person who abused you. You may be very scared. You may just not want to lose your family. And we have to remember that 80% of the time, sexual offenders are in, convicted for sentenced to less than two years. So you might go through the loss of your family, years in court, that person could be out in a very short amount of time. And the consequence of that is, is major. I think yeah. in some of the articles that, you know, we, we shared in the email prior to the program, I was really shocked to learn that, um, you know, the, first of all, the length of the process of, of convicting an offender and, and then the outcome is exactly what you said, Tara. It's, um, I mean, is it worth it? I mean, that's really up to the, I mean, the, I, I think sometimes that the justice system does fail the victim because sometimes it's two years, sometimes it's community service. I read mm -hmm. in one instance and, and, I don't know the the, the, the sort of uh, case surrounding that, but I mean, Darcy, um, you, yeah. you, you're a lawyer. Um, in, in what circumstances does it result in something like community service when you've sexually assaulted a child or, or anyone for that matter? Why, you know, why does it come to such a light sentence, if you can call that a sentence? Right. That's something Tara and I've talked about quite a bit, actually, um, in my own practice. So I can only speak to what I've observed in my own um, legal practice. But um, one, so there's a couple of things. Um, one thing is I think there's some work to be done in the frontline workers who are immediately confronted with these victims and um, being more sensitive, um, being, you know, um, a trauma-informed sort of so that they know how to deal with these um, victims when they come to them. I've had, um, I've experienced clients who have been um, asked by various officials, oh, is this just a quarrel between you and a boyfriend or between, you know, are you, or are you doing this as a rebellious thing? So that immediately is a, is a barrier to some victims and coming forward because they make that first approach and then when they're pushed back they shut down and that's the end of that um with respect to sentencing i've also seen the case where um charges are reduced so you will have somebody who initially is arrested for something that is say like an indecent assault or some kind of um sexual assault and then eventually by the time it winds its way through the court they get something like um, loitering, which is a very common charge that, particularly with children, there are a number of cases where children are sort of um, like stalked through the streets or in playgrounds, and then they end up getting charged with a loitering offense, which would be, you know, no incarceration time at all. So there are these kinds of difficulties with, and as you said, I mean, 
the justice system and it's sort of what we have to work with, but there are improvements that can definitely be made. And one of the difficulties that we saw with the DOJ information was that if it is less than two years, if the sentence is less than two years, it goes to the magistracy courts and the magistracy doesn't publish their decisions. So we don't have any insight into what's happening in terms of actual cases to read. And they also, for whatever reason, don't keep statistics. They only keep statistics on the higher level offenses. So it was quite difficult for us to get transparency into what are people actually being charged with or arrested for? And then what at the end of the day are they actually being found guilty of? And is there a match or a mismatch? Because that's also important information as well. Wow. Mm. Is um, um, Darcy, the yeah. current, with all the current discussion about um, sexual abuse and some of the legal reform, yeah. is what's being suggested going to help address some of these issues? Well, Maybe not specifically that issue. I think some of the issues that are going to be addressed are actually things we haven't even touched on yet, which is that the legislation as it stands now, and I mentioned it's from the 50s, so it might not surprise you to learn that we have some kind of really unusual offenses. So currently, a lot of the sexual offenses with children, and not just with children, but also adults, are, for example, gendered. So it's different the type of offense that a man can commit versus the type of offense a woman can commit. And a key example of that would be, say, incest. So if you look at the incest offense, any male can commit incest, whereas only a woman over the age of 16 can commit incest currently. So you have this sort of old... And query why that is the case. Again, Karen, as you said, I could, I could guess, but I don't, you know, there's that distinction. And is this law sort of inherited um, as well from, from the 50s? Yeah. So, okay. Well, so this well, is English law that we, that was, the you common know, law that inherited. We yeah. Not unusual, right? Uh, we'll have to take um, a, a quick break for the news. Uh, we'll return to this topic uh, this morning on the Agenda Cafe. Um, we are still live on Facebook, so I'll keep it rolling, uh, but we'll be back, so don't go anywhere. A quick look at the way with me, Noreen Mayer and Karen Code this Thursday morning. And Karen joins us live this morning. Um, I'm just trying to fix the yeah. Facebook live, so I hope we've got the feedback. Sorry, go on, Karen. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. Um, today, we are talking about the situation in Hong Kong with child sexual abuse and what we know, what we don't know, and what our legal system um, provides for. And we're uh, talking with Tora Edgar, who's the founder of Talk Hong Kong, which is a volunteer peer-led group of women and femme survivors of child sexual abuse. Uh, Tora also recently published a groundbreaking report on exactly this, what we know, what we don't know in Hong Kong. And Darcy Davison-Roberts, who's a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong and is a human rights lawyer. She's also working with Talk Hong Kong as an advisor. So uh, Darcy, before the break, you were starting to tell us about some of these antiquated laws we have on our books related to sexual offences. You want to carry on with some of the, and, and what it means for today's um, survivors and also perpetrators. Sure. Uh, one of the things, so I was talking about the, the distinction in the incest law where um, it, re- it only refers to a man um, committing incest on one section, but on the other section that deals with women, it deals with um, women who are of or over the age of 16. So in theory, that law suggests that any male can commit incest at any age, whilst a woman can only commit incest once she's over the age of 16. 
so these distinctions based on gender, one of the things that the Law Reform Commission wanted to look at and has recommended that we de-gender the legislation so that no longer will it be um, gendered. I mean, it might surprise some of the listeners to know that even rape right now is an offense that can only be committed by a male. Really? Against a female. So not only is it gendered, but it's also based on sexual orientation. It's not an offense that can be committed against a same-sex partner, a same-sex individual, for example. So some of these laws, um, the Law Reform Commission has looked at and has said, look, we need to degender, first of all. So we, the fact that we have distinctions based on boys and girls, men and women, male and female, is no longer appropriate. Um, second of all, we need to look at the sexual orientation of the law. So it's inappropriate to continue to have laws that are based on a sexual orientation bias. So saying that, you know, criminalizing same sex or homosexual conduct versus heterosexual conduct. Um, and then also looking at the protective principle, because this is a huge challenge in Hong Kong. We have a multiplicity of ages. So it criminalizes behavior at 13. 15, 16, sorry, 13, 16, and then 18 and 21. So we have offenses based on a broad range of ages. And just from a sort of public policy standpoint, you can imagine, well, first of all, why? What's query why that happens? And then, you know, shouldn't we be looking at it in a more principled way? So the Law Reform Commission has also recommended that we implement a protective principle of and use a standardized age of consent of 16, and that we also then have a two-step process with respect to offenses against children at those under 13 and those under 16. So streamlining a bit, we still have multiplicity of ages, but but bringing it to that sort of younger and older child situation. What's the sort of legal definition of a child here in Hong Kong, for example? <laughs> Is Well, that's and that's the Very point, tight. really, yes. isn't it? Because uh, again, something that Tara and I talk about all the time is that on the Convention on the Rights of the Child, you are not an adult until you reach the age of 18. And I think that's something we're probably broadly familiar with, regardless of where you're from, Australia, America, Canada, that 18 is the age of majority. You can sign up to the military, you can vote and so on. But for whatever reason, with respect to issues of sexual offenses, there's this tension between wanting to um, provide sexual autonomy to individuals versus this protection principle that we want to protect people who may not have the developmental capacity, the ability to make good judgments. And so there's this tension that we have to kind of resolve. I so, often find it quite surprising, and you're absolutely right, Darcy. You know, here in Hong Kong, at 18, we can vote. Um, yeah. you know, you can we can drive, we, we get our uh, we can drink, absolutely. We, we get our Hong Kong ID, the adult one. Um, yeah. but at 16, you can get married. Um, yep. so there seems well, are you an are, are you an adult at 16? Um, can, can you make those sort of sorts of decisions? So in the eyes, you can't of the, get a bank account until you're 18. Exactly, right. exactly. That's a good point. Which is which is Darcy? I just want to bring that back to the the victims because I've seen this a number of times that kids between 16 and 17 are really in a trapped situation they have not reached legal majority in many ways there are a lot of things they can't reasonably do to escape especially if there's abuse at home which is frequently the case but they are not minors in the in the sense of these sexual offenses so it's it's yes we would really, I would really advocate for 
the age of consent being 18. Mm -hmm. But but that's for the future. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think a few years back, it must be about 10 years back, I remember there was a case of um, a a boy, um, well, a a boy who was 16 who was in the hospital ward, and he had um, assaulted a a younger child. And because they were in the same ward, so that that, that was the the whole debate. At what age are you still a child? At what age are you an adult? Um, And and so that um, brought, brought a lot of debate. So I, I want to go back to something that something Darcy and Tora mentioned just now. So at this point, if children or um, encounter sexual abuse, is there a clear framework of, of a reporting system? Um, and and is the lack of a, a clear um, framework um, could that also deter people from from reporting? Because Tora, you mentioned it's very daunting psychologically for for a child to report this, but also is the lack of the, the the clear framework also contributing to people not wanting to report because they don't really know what the system is, what the framework is. Um, Darcy, Tora, Tora. <laughs> I just want to say, first of all, I don't work directly with children, so I would hesitate to say that I know exactly how the EDB has things set up. I have certainly read what that framework is for them internally, but I I don't have direct enough knowledge to speak on that with authority. But I, I definitely have the sense that in most cases, it seems extremely daunting. Like Darcy mentioned, she's frequently seen situations where when you do report, the reaction is is so not trauma-informed that it tends to put off the reporter. But I think we're focusing a lot on the victim being responsible to report. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's necessarily the right way to go. I just saw a great lecture from an expert in the UK, Julia Rudolph, who does a lot of research on what kind of methods are working in terms of educating and protecting and reporting. And there isn't a huge amount of research anywhere in the world, but when they looked at, is it effective that we teach kids from a young age an ongoing age appropriate education about body autonomy and uh, messages such as, if someone in the future makes you uncomfortable, tell me. Those concepts are too hard for a little person to understand anyway. And the fact is their abuser might not make them feel uncomfortable. They might make them feel loved. So we're putting a lot of burden currently on the victim to report. And I think we need to spend a lot more time thinking about child protection programming, focusing on the adults in the system. Mm-hmm. So without having inside knowledge of what happens here, only, only again, anecdotal stories from women who arrive at the support group, mm-hmm. I'd like to say the big thing we can do is focus on the adults, not on putting the responsibility on kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, Darcy, um, there was recently a, a, a report in Hong Kong Free Press, which interviewed four victims of childhood sexual abuse who about the the prospect of compulsory reporting which is another legal concept Mm -hmm. that's being thrown around right now and all of them said if it was compulsory i would never report because it's so traumatic and it's true if you're a, a a child you're you live with your family if your abuser is in your family how are you going to report them? Where are you going to go afterwards? So I think, Tori, you're right. And how do we then translate that sort of education into 
action. I mean, who who can who can take that action? Because it is one of those crimes that's hidden. It, it takes place behind mm. closed doors, inside, often inside a family, often by someone who's part of the family or, or knows the family exactly. Trusted. Yeah. So how do we how do we you know make it so that it's something that people are not going to be afraid to report? Boy, not be afraid to report. That's a that's a long term goal, and I hope we get there. But I think what we can all, as adults in society, do are simple things. First of all, if you're a parent, you need to speak with every organization that has contact with your child. I'm talking about schools, tutors, coaches, doctor's offices, for example, and ask them what their child safeguarding plan is. And I don't, I don't mean what they teach kids. I mean, how do they handle the adults in their organization that spend close time with kids? Because the more we create that kind of demand by asking it, even if you as the parent don't know what the right answer is, we need to create the demand for the system to improve. And that's something we can all do. Plus there's great online training for learning just as an individual layperson how to interrupt and prevent sexual abuse. Darkness to Light is a great US organization that really specializes in training adult lay people how to manage that. So I, th I think we just need to have a little bit of a shift in mentality of not imposing that burden on the victims, but being the grown-ups in the room I mean, for example, in Australia, if you want to work with children, you, you have to have a certificate, a working with children certificate. Is there any such thing here in Hong Kong? Nope. We don't even have mandatory record checking. No, we don't. I mean, as, as we just talked about, there are very few convictions. So you, at this stage in time, you wouldn't be likely to find much. But there's no requirement for you to check an employee's record. A lot of schools in Hong Kong do, but that's their company policy it's not a requirement at all mm. so tora you've you've got this data now what can you do with it what do you what do you hope to do with it because you spend so much time and energy yeah. on it, and it's, and, it's we, and we will every year and the hope is to improve it every year but the main thing is to give child protection professionals policy makers people like us the, really the data to say, this is what we're missing, this is what we need, rather than just saying, oh, I have a feeling that child abuse is really a problem, but it seems so rare, you know, to really get specific about what we know and to start making specific plans, because it, it just feels a bit like here, even, even if agencies feel that there is abuse, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of specific planning and you need to get specific if you're going to stop something. Yeah. So the goal is that every year we will uh, in hopefully get a bit more data from the government. Maybe over time they will start to record more data and to work with other NGOs that work on child protective actions. Yeah. So far, w what's the response been like? Have you, have you started to talk to government departments? And I are they, haven't. Are they happy? Yet. Or are they like, oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> I haven't yet. Um, you know, the life of an NGO. They should be happy. Things. Somebody's yeah. done the work for them yeah, with all the data. Yeah, okay. Yes, they'll be <laughs> <That'd> great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, by the way, I'm still looking for a PR pro bono agency if they'd love to come help me. So, you know, you just have to do what you have time to do and uh, still pay the rent. So that's ongoing. Yeah. I mean, I think it is on the radar. Um, it's a bit, I know that, again, Tor and I talked about this, the policy address looked at this mandatory mm. reporting. Um, and as Noreen mentioned, there have been some very high profile, very difficult, awful cases of not just child sex abuse, but also just neglect and abuse in general. So hopefully these items are on the government's radar. They did um, implement a ch children's commission a few years back in response to NGOs calls to do so. So there is movement and you have to be, one of the things that I've, I'm always interested in is how to bring about that change. How do you push that change forward? And for me, this is a bit of a new one. I often use litigation to do that. In this case, we're using data. And I do think the data is so strong in this situation you know, and it's so compelling. Mm -hmm. So hopefully, yeah, we can bring that forward in the government or whomever needs to see it will. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think the government are looking for stiffer punishment. I think the government is aiming to introduce the bill in the first half of uh, next year. Um, and, and this is in the wake of, of, um, of, of the case at the Society of Protection of Children where people, where, where children were, were uh, abused. Um, I think one 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 point I want to go back to is and 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 I think I talked about this very recently uh, with uh, Caro Sito from Save the Children and is that the adults are failing our children and the fact that it, these are underreported and in the really really sad case of the little girl who who passed away um, there were people who must have saw you know seen the bruises kindergarten teachers um, social uh, workers um, uh, neighbors I know I, I could just go on or just people that would have seen the that the child was hurt um, and nobody came forward and these cases can be prevented yes even though it happens behind closed doors that you know people would have seen her with bruises so why are adults just not really reporting is it I, I don't know is it is it a cultural thing is it because people are worried things will get will, will only get worse um, for, for the child if, if you report I, I, I don't know Tora I, I think it's even simpler than that you know, our 96% unreported is very high, but it's not dissimilar than what you would see in other jurisdictions, I think. So I, I'm not sure that it is a cultural thing, but I think it is a human thing. Because what I see over and over again, anecdotally, when I'm speaking to people, is that it's such a terrible thing to consider that someone is doing this to a child, maybe it's even somebody you know, your neighbor, your husband. And I'm, I, I am pointing out males because it's 93% of known perpetrators are males, unfortunately. But I think it's just on a human level, it's so hard to contemplate that we tend to think that can't be right, what if I'm wrong? And we need to be thinking, what if I'm right? You know, if it's 12% of kids, what if I'm right? So I, I think it's a little bit of a shift in mentality. I think education is also yeah. key. I have had a number of um, people come to me or clients where they actually just didn't know that what was happening was inappropriate or a crime. 
So I'll give you an example um, of a very young girl who I ended up seeing whose parents were watching pornography openly in the house. And so that to the parent, that was not a form of abuse. You know, they weren't doing anything actively to that particular person. So, you know, that didn't seem to them to be wrong. But if but, you know, once you educate people to say, look, for children to see sexualized images or to see sexual activity is traumatizing and harmful. So I think those kinds of educational, like just educating people as to what is appropriate and inappropriate or lawful and unlawful as well. Yeah, and and certainly talking about it on on the radio and so that people know that, you know, these things are harmful and and wrong, but also having an avenue of where to go. I mean, do you go straight to the police? Do you go to um, a a social worker? If you suspect your neighbour is abusing uh, their child, you know, if you call the police, what are the police going to do? Um, Is there a a, a proper framework or, or mechanism? So there are, so some, so some of the, I think Rain Lily does a great job. Yes, so right. Rain Lily is out there and I think they're one of the more high profile um, hospitals. So Tungwa Hospitals has a crisis Please. number. Sorry, Tara, were you going to say? Uh, I was, the Tungwa Hospital crisis line is called CEASE, C-E-A-S-E. Yeah. Um, the social welfare department has offices throughout the city um, that you can contact. And unlike in other places where sometimes you call departments and bureaus in Hong Kong, people actually will pick up the telephone. Um, through the hospital authority, they also have social welfare workers on site. Every public hospital has a social welfare worker. Um, so there are multiple avenues. Um, but in terms of like, is there a framework that if you talk to a hundred Hong Kongers, they would all say more or less the same thing? Probably not. They would all probably have different ideas mm, about where yeah. to go. Um, the police are often not the first point of contact because of that threat of arrest. It seems very serious. So often people go to these other, uh, go through these other avenues. I think Talk also has resources on its website, Tara, don't you? Yes, I do. Yeah. I do. Uh, go ahead. No, I was, I was going to say, I think, you know, the underreporting, uh, not surprising, is because, you know, s- sexual abuse in at any age is shameful. You know, there's there's going to be an element of shame of, of either being a victim of it and I couldn't do anything about it. Uh, of course, a perpetrator is never going to ad- admit it. And because so many of these cases happen with close family contacts, either mm-hmm. relatives or someone within the family, um, it, it just makes it so much harder because the shame that mm-hmm. you would bring on your family is just beyond contemplation. Mm-hmm. So so that is probably one of the most taboo um, things that that is hardest to break down and hardest to talk about. And I think, Darcy, to your point, there's a bit of overlap with education and consent education. And we're talking so much about consent education for children. Maybe we need to also tell them that, you know, sometimes an adult who you know very well, who may even be a family member, um, you, you don't have, you know, you don't have to give consent to them. Um, they're not an exception to 
consent as well. But it is, it is a really long, slow process because there is all this shame associated with, um, abuse and, and even, of course, just talking about sex and boundaries, uh, mm. in any community. Yeah. Yeah. And let's teach some adults consent, you know, rather than again, relying on kids to protect themselves. Let's yeah, also teach adults. I mean, we, we have a comment on Facebook um, and, and um, Noreen Mir on RTHK Radio 3. Um, we have a comment that says, as a parent, the first thing I want is, as a parent, is to be able to contact a free child psychologist, um, whether it's a discipline oh. control or someone touching my kid. Um, most people don't want to talk to many authorities because it gets complicated. And why is it that teachers aren't having good relationship with uh, with ch- with the child why is the child frightened of the teacher um so also perhaps taking cues from the child but as adults we should be you know more um more vigilant and sort of um ch- better communication with our children yeah and and often children are not believed you know that the the parent thinks oh you're just making it up or you're exaggerating or mm-hmm. you just had an argument with this this teacher yeah. or this person so or how could i have married someone who would do that so i can't believe you and i, I know i keep coming back to the parent child relationship but i think it's underrepresented compared to how often it happens not that it's the only thing that happens, of course, but there are multiple reasons for that. Shame yeah. being one, we're a good family. How could that be? You're you're just a troublemaker, all those things. Yeah, absolutely I've right. I've had to think about my own parenting as well. Like I, to, to sort of this parental consent or adult consent, like I've had to think about changing things like, oh, make sure you give uncle so-and-so a hug and a kiss before we leave. Or yeah. so you know, giving children their own agency to say no to things that make them feel uncomfortable. So even, and even in my own interactions with children, like when the mother says, oh, give Auntie Darcy a hug, I say, do you want to give a high five or yeah. something, you know, yeah. because to give that child the ability to, because otherwise the messaging you're saying is adults have the right to touch you when you don't want them to touch, you know, so you've got to think about even those sort of social interactions that we just take for granted or feel normal but are really sending messages absolutely does yeah we we have a choice of three you can wave at auntie uncle you can high five or you can hug (laughs) right and and it's it's fantastic we have also a a, um a saying at home no go tell um and that is you say no and you go you run away as fast as possible this is this applies mainly to people um when you're out and about and and definitely Mm -hmm. if, if if it's happening in the home as well and you tell somebody you trust because children don't really remember really lengthy things but if you tell them right. something catchy like mm-hmm. no go tell they'll they'll know and and really just teaching your children about consent what's appropriate mm-hmm. touching or what's inappropriate touching that's totally up to the child if you don't want anybody to touch you anywhere is inappropriate it's not just mm-hmm. your private parts it's anywhere yeah. um and yeah. really just yeah sorry tara and i think and i think that early teaching of touch is your choice no forced affection is the name mm. of that kind oh, of teaching okay. And I think that kind of actual demonstration in the moment is the kind of thing kids can remember and feel a sense of their autonomy more than you telling them someday in the future, someone may do something that makes you feel uncomfortable, mm. which might not be the dynamic anyway. But that's a that's a real example of how kids have ex- 
autonomy. And I think I think that's a little bit easier to absorb. Exactly. Because I think the other thing we need to remember is that most child sexual abuse is probably a long, slow process. Yeah. It's not a one-off in the corner somewhere. It's touches that start with very small things that do not make you feel like you need to run and tell. Mm. So, you know, by the time it gets to the point where it's abuse, they've already been groomed for long enough that that whole no-go tell, that's probably great for a stranger situation. And I think, I do think it is good to teach. I'm not saying don't Mm -hmm. teach it, but I think it's much more nuanced than that. And once again, we can't rely on kids to do that and we shouldn't expect them to do that themselves yeah yeah oh, that you're right um darcy just going back to uh, this two whole minutes left law reform <laughs> law reform thing yeah going on for what how many years we're, we're we're gonna be closing in on 20 years i guess since 2006 yeah so we're getting there so when do you think the the laws are actually going to be changed when are so we to actually- be fair to the law reform commission they have had some successes. There has been some changing, um, some amendments have been made, but the, the bulk of the work is still to be done in terms of, I think there's something in excess of 70 recommendations and a very serious overhaul of that part of the crimes ordinance that deals with sexual offenses. And if um, I checked for the latest update and it is currently under consideration by the um, security bureau. So it it will it still has time to wend its way, which is really where people like Tara and Talk can step in and start to advocate for those changes to be made and others who are in this space as well to start yeah. you know putting the pressure on the government to say look you've got the recommendations in hand let's move forward with it mm-hmm. tora i'm just going to let you have the last word you are going to be speaking at this year's tedx tin how women um could you yeah. want to talk a little bit about that well i think i just spent an hour telling you <laughs> I'm going to try not to repeat too much. No, I'm super excited. It's such a great opportunity to tell a thousand people who live in Hong Kong, really start with grassroots, what we know and don't know. And we'll cover a lot of the topics that we covered here and a little bit about how I got to the point of wanting to do a project like this. So I'm super excited. I'm not not terribly nervous now, which is good. That's awesome. Well, I really want to thank you both for coming on today. It it really is one of those subjects that we do need to talk more about. Mm -hmm. And so having you both really explain the situation in Hong Kong is so valuable. So thanks so much for joining us today on the Agenda Cafe. Thank you. Thank so you for having much. us. Thank you. Thank you so much to Tara and also to uh, Tara and also to Darcy and Karen. And I'll be back uh, next Monday. And James Ross will be sitting in for me tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in.